Well, everyone, welcome to City Light. Good morning. How are we doing? We're great. Okay, cool. <laughs> if any of the runners are in here, they're like, I'm not even saying a word right now. I'm too tired. Um, well, my name is Isaac, uh, like most said, and I'm, uh, I'm the worship director here, and I'm excited you guys chose to spend Marathon Sunday with us. Uh, one of our pastors, Austin, is, I think this is Justin, I think he just finished walking the half did he just cross the finish line? I think so. Um, but he, t- he took uh, Ben, one of our interns, his moral support with him too to cheer him along the way. And uh, Mo is here to be my roll dog for this morning. And he got the, the week off for a much-deserved week of rest. So uh, I'm excited to be up here preaching this morning. And we've been following the story of Jesus through the Gospel of John here at City Light, if you've been with us the last few months, and each week has really been just upping the tension as, as we come to kind of the climax of Jesus' personal life, his ministry, with this week of the Passover. So uh, we left off last week. Austin came in and spoke about how Lazarus was resurrected, right? Jesus comes and resurrects Lazarus from the dead, and how that points to a greater resurrection in Jesus, and how that, that is really where our life is found. And after Lazarus' resurrection, however, we see that Jesus has a, an even bigger target on his back. Uh, and before we jump into chapter 12, I just want to ask a, a question here. Can you think of a time that you've had to completely let go of something in order to, to gain something better? And it's kind of a, a weird question to think about, right? Uh, and, and as I've been thinking about it this week, I've, I've been thinking about, man, they're like, what are some examples from my life? Uh, I think about when I had this sweet four-door, bright red Chevy Lumina uh, in high school that I got from my great-grandma, and it was a nice car. I liked it a lot, but I had to let go of that car. I had to, you know, I had to like be okay with letting go of it to get the golden bullet, as I called it, which was a two-door gold Monte Carlo. Uh, took out a deer one time with it. I was okay. The deer was not. Um, I also think about, so I grew up on a farm, and I would walk around with a BB gun thinking I was like this, this big shot, and I would try and shoot things with it. I had to let go of the BB gun in order to kind of graduate to a, a 22 or a shotgun, however not excited about that my parents were. Uh, and, and other things I think about, man, like if you, if you ever had like a stuffed animal, like a stuffed puppy or something, and you had to, you had to kind of let go of that in order to get a, a real puppy. And that's like a, that's a big trade-off, right? That's a big trade. Or maybe if you're like Austin, you're like wanting a pygmy goat instead, uh, if you're into that kind of a thing. But I think one of the best examples I've thought of, and it's funny because it doesn't directly apply to me, but I'm the youngest of four brothers. They're all married. They all have kids. Uh, and I've been able to watch them kind of go through this process of, of having a kid. And, and if you're a parent, if, you, if you've had the blessing of having a kid, you, you kind of realize that like, when you have a kid, you're, you're, there's a cost to that, literally a financial cost. Like, it costs a lot of money, right, uh, to have a kid. But there's a cost that you kind of lose some freedom when you have a kid, right? Like, you don't sleep as well. You, you have this little thing that literally depends on you for everything. So uh, there, there's a cost that comes with that. And, and I think the idea of laying something down to gain something greater is something that we're going to see in this passage today as we walk through John 12. 1 through 26. So my, my first point here is Jesus is worth it all. Uh, and we're going to start with verses 1 through 3 here. It says again, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, 
Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So this is kind of the the calm before the storm, if you will. Uh, So Jesus is coming down for the the Passover, right? And he's coming down for really the pinnacle moment of of his life and his ministry. But before he, he goes to Jerusalem, he comes to Bethany. And he was just recently at Bethany. If you remember, if you were here last week, he was there to raise Lazarus from the dead. And now he's essentially back for a party. They're, they're literally throwing him a party, a big thank you party. And if you think about this, like, this would probably be pretty dang crazy to be at, right? Like, you're, you're chilling. With, like, let's, let's put yourself in, like, Mary or Martha's shoes. Like, you're, you're chilling with this guy named Jesus and your brother who was just dead and now isn't. And so, like, the first time in the history of ever somebody that was dead is alive again uh, on earth. So you're, you're chilling here with, with Jesus, with the disciples, with Lazarus. And, and they're just throwing a big thank you party for him. So we come to this scene here in verses 1 through 3, and, and Martha is serving up this killer meal, as Martha always does. She, she's always just killing it in the kitchen. And, and Lazarus is reclining at the table. He's, he's really just chilling there with disciples. We don't actually see Lazarus say anything. Uh, so he's pretty content just to hang out. And, and he, he's, he's literally just with the disciples, with Jesus, looking at this guy who just resurrected him back to life, which is pretty crazy to think about. And, and Mary enters the room, right? Mary comes into this room. She breaks out this bottle of perfume, or, or what they would call nard. Uh, and it's probably pretty similar to Axe or Old Spice or, you know, maybe, uh, maybe Jake by Hollister. Shout out to high school. I still wear it, actually. Um, I think I needed to put some more Axe on this morning, actually, too. Uh, yep. So, anyway, she takes this, this bottle of perfume and she proceeds to anoint Jesus with this. And guys, this is a big deal. Like, if you were in this room, this would be pretty crazy to watch go down. And Judas later estimates that this bottle is around the equivalent of like a year's minimum wage. And so if you put that in our terms today, we're, we're talking about the measly sum of $25,000. Like, that, that's actually a pretty big chunk of change, just to dump out uh, like this. So... This is, a, this is an imported perfume from the Himalayas. Maybe it's like the, the really cool hip thing to have. I don't know why it's that expensive, but uh, it's really nice, apparently. And this is probably one of the most valuable possessions that their family had, if you think about it, right? This is a full year's wage for them. And, and Mary comes and takes this and just lavishes this nard on Jesus' body. And, and I don't know if I can really overstate how amazing of a scene this would be if you were in that room. Like, let's, let's imagine that you're... You're, you're going to throw a party, and you're going to have maybe Mo or Austin come over because God's using them to do, do some cool things. And, and you're like, yeah, we're going to have our family. We're going to have all our friends. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to have this big meal. And, and you're sitting there, and like maybe your little sister just like walks out with the deed and the keys to like your brand-new car. And just in a very serious attitude, like very grateful attitude, just walks up to Mo or Austin and just gives it to him because Mo drives a minivan and needs a new car. So... Like, if you're in that moment, like, I imagine that you could probably hear a pin drop. Once you actually realize what just happened, like, it'd be, it would kind of be awkward, I would think, with, with how silent it would be as they watch this go down. And then probably your next thought is like, whoa, 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 dude, that's expensive. 
Like, that's a lot of money just to just give in, in that way right there. But that's what we see here, right? We see Mary, who thinks nothing of herself and thinks everything of Jesus. She even lets her hair down, which is considered to be like the glory of, of a woman in this day. It's, it's clean. They keep it up. And she lets it down and makes it a towel for the feet, literally the dirtiest part of her king right here. Because the least of Jesus is worthy of the best of us. You don't just put the, the best ointment on his head and, and then put the worst on his feet. Because the lowliest part of Jesus is infinitely more precious than the, the highest gift of man, right? And friends, this was a calculated, reckless, and really wasteful act that, that Mary just does here. Uh, and it may have been directed toward Jesus, but really everyone is the, the beneficiary of this fragrance, right? I don't know if you've ever taken like a can of Axe and just Axe bomb someone's room and just spray the entire thing in it. It smells, right? It smells a lot. And if you imagine sitting in this room and she just dumps it, like just dumps this all over Jesus, like Jesus would smell for one, like he, that probably stuck with him for a while. Uh, but the entire room would smell too. And, and now we get to see how the people that are in that room respond to it in verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas is, is hanging out here with these guys, and I would imagine he's probably just beside himself in his heart as he watches this, watches this unfold in front of him. Because his concern here. It's really just for how much money this perfume would bring back at the market, right? And he says, you know, why wasn't this sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? In my mind, I'm like, that's actually a really good question. Like, seriously, that's a great question. And if it wasn't for verse 6 here that comes right after it that John gives us, I think my, my pragmatic mind is like, yeah, that, that's, that, that would probably be a great use of this money. Like, this is a lot of money. We could do a lot of good things with this. But... Judas here is actually using what is a good thing, and actually a biblical thing, of caring for the poor, and he's using it to, to cover up his own greedy and, and covetous heart, right? And so the point here isn't necessarily that we, we should or shouldn't care for the poor. We absolutely should. The, the real point here is just the stark contrast between Mary and Judas and their own appraisal of how much Jesus is worth in their heart. So, so one is a, a worshiper, right? Mary, Mary is a worshiper. One is a thief. It literally just says that. He, he steals from the money bag. One is the way of grace. One is the way of sin. One is, is one who actually sits at the feet of Jesus and listens to him and knows him. The other one is, is the one who all he knows is himself and, and what he can gain for himself. And now we get to see Jesus' response to both of them, verse 7 and 8. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. If I'm in the room and all I heard was what Judas said and then what Jesus says, I mean, that's actually a pretty sharp response because Judas asked a pretty good question, right? We should give this to the poor. But Jesus knows the heart, right? Jesus knows the heart behind what Judas is saying. And and you see, Mary's been sitting at the feet of Jesus. In every account, like Mo said, like Austin said, in every account we see of Mary, she's sitting at his feet, listening. 
And she's maybe the only one that actually even remotely understands what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's about to do. And I think when Jesus tells Judas to, to leave her alone, that she might keep it for the day of his burial, I think what he's, what he's wanting her to keep is this just amazing sense of awe and worship and faith that she has. Because she's seen Jesus do miracle after miracle, right? She's, she's been with him. She's been at his feet. She's listened to him. And, and just recently, she saw him raise her brother from the dead for the first time ever that that happened. And in her own heart, as she's been with Jesus, she's been able to appraise Jesus as worthy of everything that she has. And Judas, on the other hand, even with this very question, is, is questioning the value of Jesus, right? He's thinking, Jesus, you're not worthy of so much money. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I am worthy of so much more, Right? And I don't think it should be lost on us here either that in other accounts of this, we see in Mark 14, we see in Matthew 26, that Judas actually leaves this and goes to the chief priest to plan his betrayal of Jesus. That's where he goes directly from this. And it's striking to me that I think the most lavish displays of devotion to Jesus can often be a fork in the road for people who who are watching and and thinking, you know, is is this Jesus really worth it? I think... Devotion to God reveals idolatry to lesser gods. Like, this would be convicting to be in that room, to see that go down. And, and I, I think, you know, are we, are we so committed to Jesus that people think we're a little crazy? I'm not talking like be out on the street yelling condemnation at people. That's not, that's not the kind of crazy I'm talking about here. Uh, but does our love for other things just pale in comparison to how worthy we see Jesus of being? in our lives. Like even something as good as caring for the poor, like which we definitely should do. We should definitely care for the poor, but does our love for Jesus make that just pale in comparison? So I have to ask the question here, what what is your perfume? What is your what is your most valued possession, right? We see we see Mary dump this out here and Mary understood that Jesus was above all to be most treasured. She sat at his feet, listened to his words, experienced life in his presence, and her actions actually reflected that, right? Her actions reflected how valuable she thought Jesus was. And the question is, do ours? Do our actions actually reflect that? And if I'm honest and looking at myself, probably not all the time, probably not most of the time, right? But what would we give for Jesus? Because he's the pearl of great price. He is the, the treasure that's hidden in the field that we see in Matthew 13, 44 through 46, what is our most valued possession? Is it our bank account? Is it our position? Is it a relationship? Is it our house? Is it our kids? And the question is, will we give it? Would, would we open our hands and let Jesus use it? Will we make it available for him to use? And, and there are, I think there are so many voices out there telling us, like, man, just tone it down. Like, deaden, deaden the way you, you display your affection for Jesus. Like, don't, don't be so over the top with it. And I think what I see here and what I would plead is like, man, don't listen to them. Right? Don't let them keep you from really just lavishing your devotion to Jesus in your actions and letting your life be worshipped to him like Mary does right here. Uh, I, I think about the 4th of July, and I like the 4th of July. We just blow things up for fun. 
who doesn't like that, right? But if you think about fireworks, like we spend a lot of money on fireworks. If you go like a big fireworks show, they spend like thousands and thousands of dollars on something that lasts like a minute. Uh, you literally are watching your money burn right in front of your eyes. Um, but at the same time, like that's something that we deem worth celebrating. And so we, we light things off. We're like, yeah, this is worth like, this is worth our money. And I wonder, like, do we view our lives with Jesus in the same way? Like, would we give our lives in the same way as Mary does here? I think as I read this this passage, right, if we we just take this passage and this is the first thing we see, I think we have to ask the question, you know, why is Jesus worthy of everything? And And is he actually worthy of everything? Who is this guy? And the next verses here, show us in, in 9 through 19. So we're going to get to our, our second point here, that Jesus is the awaited king. So I'm going to read 9 through 16 to start it out. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him, and had been done to him. Yes, Lazarus' resurrection was a big deal. Like Austin talked about this last week. Up until this point in history, death was like the undisputed, undefeated, heavyweight champion of the world. Like nothing had ever even come close to matching it. Like 100% of people died and they stayed dead. Uh, But once Jesus said, Lazarus, come out or come forth, when, when, when he resurrected Lazarus, people heard about it. And in God's providential timing, this is happening right before the Passover, and, and thousands and thousands of people are coming down to Jerusalem to worship, and, and this is just spreading like wildfire, what just happened, right? And, and they're all thinking, man, could this actually be the Messiah that we've been waiting for? And this sign, the fact that he just raised someone from the dead, probably seemed to point, point to that, right? It's a pretty obvious sign, like nobody's ever done that. So Lazarus' resurrection spurred not only... The, the celebration that we see here in, in this entrance, but it also quickened the plan that they had to put Jesus to death. And, and also Lazarus now, right? Because of his testimony. And we see here in verse 9, in verse 12, there's just large crowds, thousands of people, thousands of people coming down here because of what they believed was their Messiah. And, and they're, they're celebrating, right? This, this is the person that they've been waiting for. It's been prophesied about. They've been hearing about all of their lives. They've been waiting for him. And so this place is just hyped up. There, there are tons of people waiting for Jesus to come in. And so I'm from a, I'm from a small town. And uh, these, these towns outside of Jerusalem, they ain't no New York City. It's like they're, they're small towns. And like word travels fast. So people know like, hey, Jesus is coming in from Bethany. He's coming in on this day. And we're going we're gonna to celebrate. We're going we're gonna to be there for it, Right? And so what they do is they go out and they grab branches, they start cheering, they start yelling, they're, they're, they're worshiping, and they start chanting this thing. Uh, everyone starts chanting this, and they're, and they're quoting uh, a verse here, and they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. 
And I want to pause and make sure that we actually understand, one, what, what they are saying, but also consequently, number two, like what, what Jesus is saying when he actually rides in in the midst of this. So Hosanna in the Hebrew actually literally meant help, save me, please. It's a, it's a cry for, for help, and it's found in, in Psalm 118.25, and it's followed directly by, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we would see this cry for help, right, when they say, Hosanna, like this is a cry for help, help, please save me, and then directly followed by an answer from God. And over the years, this, this phrase, this word Hosanna, actually would, would kind of transition to become a shout of hope, right? It, it transitioned from a, a cry of help to a shout of hope over the years for them. So when these people are shouting at Jesus, they're shouting Hosanna. What they're literally saying is, salvation, salvation, salvation has come. It's right in front of us. Jesus is here, finally. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And let me, uh, let me illustrate this through, through another analogy. So uh, I'm a sports guy. I love sports. I work at Huddle. So I could literally talk to you uh, for hours about uh, anything with sports, about how Steph Curry's probably the best shooter ever. LeBron, I don't like him, but I respect his game, and I'm not going to get into it. But I love sports, and most of us here are Husker fans, right? Are we all, are we all kind of Husker fans? We're in Lincoln. Well, if you're not, sorry. Uh, so I'm thinking about uh, a way to illustrate this, and I think about, you know, the probably the most exciting moment in Nebraska football history that I've been alive for in my long 26 years. Uh, and that happened in 2001. Some of you are going to remember this. You probably know where I'm going already. Uh, we're playing Oklahoma up here in Lincoln. It's the fourth quarter, six and a half minutes left. We're up 13 to 10. I'm going to get into this. I hope you guys are ready for it. We're up 13 to 10. And uh, we have the ball on our own, like, 36, 37-yard line. So this is a big game, by the way. This is, like, nationally top 10 ranked teams going at it. Uh, so here, here, here's the play, right? We, we take the snap. We, we hand it to Thunder Collins. Thunder Collins goes to his right. He pitches it. Mike Stunts gets the ball. Mike Stunts rolling to his left. Uh-oh, he's going to pass it, right? Let's it fly, left-handed. I'm sorry, I'm not left-handed. That doesn't look good. But he throws it, left-handed. And the ball's in the air, right? The ball's just hanging in the air. We're going to pause. Ball's in the air. And you hear a cry from people in the stadium, right? And this cry is, is literally like, catch it, please catch it. We need you to catch this ball. Like, if you don't catch this, I don't think we're going to win this game. Like, Oklahoma might come back to score. So please, catch the ball. And that ball is flying through the air, lands, lands right in the hands, the soft hands of my childhood idol, Eric Crouch. And, and when it lands in his hands, he's at the 40. He's at the 35, the 30. And that cry from the stands, it, you know, it was just a, a cry of, like, help us. But once, once he catches it, that, that switches, and it's a cry of, he's got us. Like, he's got it. Before he even scores the touchdown, people are, like, going nuts in the stadium, right? They know that he's going to score. And so what, what was a, a cry of help us turns to he's got us, and what was an unsure cry for help becomes a, a confident cry because they're, of the reality of their hope realized in front of their eyes, right? You guys probably never thought you'd see Eric Crouch and. Jesus in the same passage, but yeah. Uh, so Jesus in this passage, when he mounts this donkey, when he rides in amongst all these cheers, he's saying, yes, I am your king. Yes, I am the one that you've been waiting for. I am your hope realized. 
I am worthy of your praise, of your possessions. But at the same time, his answer is misconstrued by these people. You see, the people didn't realize that, that he was coming to be more than just the king of the Jews. He was coming to be the king of the world, and that required a much different course than what they had expected. We see in verse 15 here, they quote a verse from Zechariah 9. 9. I'm going to read that verse uh, in its fullness from Zechariah. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is confirming their claim. Yes, like he, he's saying, like, I am your king. But they miss what he's kind of actually doing in this moment based on just what they would see in front of them. And, and most rulers, most kings, when they come into a city, what are they riding? They're riding a horse. Mike, Mike says he's like, there's always some dude on a horse. There's always some dude on a horse. If you go into some city, there's always going to be a statue of some guy on a horse. Uh, so a horse is a sign of power. It's a sign of war. And that's what these people probably would have expected Jesus to ride in on. But he comes in on a donkey? Like, and, and not just a donkey, like the, the colt of a donkey. So like a little baby donkey. And, and you're thinking like, okay, hold up. This is a little bit weird. Uh, a donkey is a sign of peace. It's a sign of humility. This is like riding in a 1995 Buick LeSabre or like a, a rusted minivan versus like a, a shiny Chrysler 200 or a Corvette, right? So Jesus is blatantly showing himself to be a different king than what they were expecting. They were expecting him to come and, and just rid them of the power of Rome. So here we see Jesus choose hope over hype. In his incredible humility, Jesus chooses our future hope over the hype of this moment. Again, this situation was hyped up. There's a lot happening here. Large crowds, people yelling, waving branches in his face, praising him. And he, he rides through probably what I would call like the first tunnel walk and probably have the music playing in the background or something. Um, but what he does is he turns down earthly fame and glory that they wanted in order to secure eternal fame and glory. And in fact, he, we see in other places, he's even weeping as he rides in through this procession. He turns away from the hype and towards the hope. See, he knew his purpose, and he didn't let the hype of this moment actually take him off course. And I think, man, how incredible for him to ride through this, and while they're crying, Hosanna, in confidence for what they thought they needed, which would have been his power on earth at that moment, Jesus is fixed on his purpose to give what they really needed, which was his life. And we see the the Pharisees and the crowds re- react in 17 through 19. The crowd had been with him, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So they're still celebrating. And the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So this, this triumphal entry, this processional is a celebration. It's a celebration of Jesus' life a celebration of a resurrection. They're celebrating Lazarus' resurrection here. And Jesus rides through it, and he knows that this, like accepting this is going to trigger a bigger event in a couple days, and that's going to be his death. And we see the Pharisees, as they see this happen, they're like, man, like we need to kill this guy. Like This is getting out of hand, so our, our, 
our solution is let's kill him. It, it'll it'll kind of quelch everything that's going on here. But they, they did kill him, right? It, and just like this was a celebration of a resurrection, that kicked off a different celebration of, of Jesus' resurrection. That's still happening today. That's why we're here, right? We're still celebrating the fact that Jesus resurrected. And I think it's funny, like their words here are prophetic and they don't mean them to be, right? They say, the world has gone after him. And you sit in this room and you say, yeah, it has. The world has gone after him. But I, but I wonder, have we, have we, have we gone after him? Have we actually gone after him, our hope? Or have we gone after the hype of something else? Are, are, we, are we caught up in the moment? Are we just kind of chasing a fad? Are we like, man, this person speaks well. This music sounds good. Like, I'm excited because everyone else is excited. What is it costing you to, to follow Jesus? You see, Jesus came and died so that he could make us joyful prisoners of hope and rescue us from the empty promises of hype. It cost him everything. It cost him everything. Hype is, is just a moment. And hope, our real hope in Jesus is eternal. In his humility, he turned down the glory of that moment so that he could receive glory for eternity. Just like Mary in verses 1 through 8, he knew that it would cost him everything. And, and as he looked, he, he was like, yes, this is worth it. My purpose here is worth it. And he came to say not, not only that he's the king of the Jews, but he is the king of the world. And almost right on cue, as they, as they talk about the world coming up to him, up walk some people that aren't Jews, right? The, these Greeks come up, and, uh, and it's kind of ironic, just literally right on cue. And, and these Greeks find out, our third point, that Jesus is not a normal salesman, all right? So we're going to read 20 through 22 right here. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So this probably isn't immediately after the entrance, but it's pretty soon after. And, and these Greeks come in, and they want to see Jesus, right? Maybe they were recently converted to Judaism. Maybe they're just interested. But either way, they want a word with him. Like, they want to interact with him. They want to, they want to talk to him. They want to see him. And, and they maybe want to follow him, right? And I think it's cool that Jesus begins his ministry by calling people to come follow him who are Jews. And by the end of it, we see people that aren't Jews that are coming up to him asking, like, can I follow you? Can I, can I come after you? And so we see Jesus respond here. And I hope you guys see some of the, the irony in his response. These guys are like excited to see him. And, and Jesus answered them in 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, pretty normal. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, okay, what up? Uh, it remains alone. But if it dies, okay, there's a lot of death right now, uh, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. That doesn't sound great. And whoever hates his life in this world, that doesn't sound great either, will keep it for life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I'm like, say what? That's, that's your sales pitch to these people? They come up and they want to see you, man. Like, they, they want to learn from you. They want to be with you. They want to follow you. And that's your sales pitch. Like, and he's done that before, right? He just has, like, he, he comes up pretty abruptly when people say things like this. And, and what is he saying here, actually? 
So in verse 23, what he's saying, he's saying, do you want to see me? Do you want to know me? Do you want to follow me? I'm on my way to glory. That's what he's saying. He's like, I'm, I'm going there. And it's right for you to want to see me. It's right for you to want to come and follow me. But just like that triumphal entry, I don't, I don't think you understand the weight of what you're actually saying in this moment. I think that's what Jesus is getting at right here. He says, if you want to associate yourself with me, it's not a pathway that is just full of a bunch of hype. It's a pathway that leads directly to death. Because only through death can he become the king of the world. Only through death does he actually bring the world back to himself. And y'all, I love these verses in 24 through 25. So I'm a farm kid. And anytime there's anything agricultural, I'm like, sweet, I actually get it a little bit. Uh, and Jesus grows up in this rural community, this farming community, so a lot of his parables are like full of agricultural images. And, and I think this is really cool. And, and in this specific one, I, I feel like God's given pictures of the gospel in our world. And I think plants are one of those, right? And I kind of want to unpack that here. So I'm going to geek out on you like a farm kid for a moment. So uh, a grain of wheat, right? A plant grows from a seed and uh, once it grows, the fruit that it bears is other seeds. In, in, in the case of wheat, it's a bunch of grains of wheat on the head of the plant, a bunch of those. And if that grain of wheat that's, that's the fruit of this original seed wants to bear fruit, it has to die. It has to detach. And when it detaches from that original life source, it dies, right? When you don't have a source of life, you're dead. Uh, so that this grain of wheat will detach. But then when it gets put in the ground... And when it gets watered and when it, when it receives sunlight, it grows, right? Just a beautiful transformation. But it has to die first to be able to do this. And then it bears the fruit of tens and hundreds of different grains of wheat. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that if I leave the road I'm on now, if I leave the road that I'm on to the cross, just to be seen by a couple people that, that want to see a king, I'm going to remain alone. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be a seed in a bag, and I'm not going to bear any fruit. And, and you won't be saved. The Jews won't be saved. The Greeks won't be saved. Like, all you're going to get is, yeah, you're just around me. Cool, congrats. But if I go, if I go to the cross, if I die, if I lose my life, then I save you. I save the Jews. I save the Greeks. I save anyone who believes in me. He's saying, do you, do you want to see me? Well, this is how I want you to see me. I want you to see me dying. And then I want you to see me bearing fruit. And then this truth about Jesus actually becomes a truth about us in verses 25 and 26. He says, that if they truly want to follow me, you know, they must deny themselves. They must count the cost, die to themselves in order to bear fruit. They need to give up the things that they held precious here. And, and if that sounds familiar, we... we we went through a passage uh, a couple months ago where Jesus addressed this certain rich young ruler. And this rich young ruler went away sad, right? Jesus said, sell all that you have and come follow me. And this guy's like, oof. Man, I don't know if that's worth that much money. That sound familiar? Just like Judas, right? But Jesus is like, no, I'm worth so much more than that. You see, to follow Jesus is to become like Jesus. There's a couple different accounts of this passage, and one of them is Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Uh, and it says, whoever 
which is to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Mo talked about this a couple weeks ago, that Jesus is a good shepherd, right? And as a good shepherd, he leads us, right? He leads us in the direction that he's going. He's been there first. He's the first one to go through it. And Jesus counted the cost first, right? He, he's the one that did that. And he lost exponentially more than we could ever imagine in order to gain life for everyone. You see, in coming to this world, Jesus exemplified the loss of his heavenly possessions. He exemplified the loss of his heavenly glory. He exemplified the loss of his heavenly life as it was in order to come down and gain something greater. And in his trip to the cross, he does the same thing, right? He exemplifies the loss of his possessions. He's stripped of all of his clothes and everything that he has. He exemplifies the loss of his glory. He's, he's spit on. He's mocked. And then he exemplifies the loss of his life by giving it. And giving everything that he has. Just to, to receive more than you could ever imagine in the end, right? By doing that, he gives us all life. And in this passage, we see Mary at the start. She's like, you know, it's worth losing my possessions. We see Jesus saying, it it is worth losing this glory that I could have right now that I might accomplish this purpose. And then we see Jesus saying, it is worth losing your life. And I want to ask, have we actually counted the cost of what it means to follow Jesus? There's a cost of losing something to gain something greater, right? Just like if you're a parent. Like, you, you lose some freedom to have a kid. There, there are, there's a loss uh, and, a, and a cost that comes with it. And I want to ask, have, have we actually considered that cost and if it's worth it to you? Uh, I said that uh, I love sports. Uh, and, and growing up, I was, I would say, like, my, my whole identity was probably just, like, sports. It was, like, uh, I was the athlete kid, and, and that's like what gave me a lot of my worth. And, and through a couple different things throughout college, some injuries and things like that, I began to realize, like, man, this, this just isn't, this doesn't fill me. Like, it, me putting my stock in this isn't really good enough. It never, it never lasts. And I could feel like Jesus was calling me, like, hey, would you count that loss? Would you count that, that earthly identity? Would you count that loss and put your identity and your worth in Jesus and, and find that to be the most valuable thing ever. And man, it's worth it, right? The peace, the freedom that comes with that is incredible. Now, I don't have to get so offended when Mo disrespects my basketball game on the court, right? I still get a little bit hurt, but I get over it. Uh, but what's it going to cost you, right? Is it going to cost you your earthly identity? Is it going to cost you in your relationships? Is it going to cost you in your bank account? Literally. And are you willing to give that up so that you might gain that much more in Christ? I think, friends, truly following Jesus will cost you. But nothing is free that's worth having. Is salvation a gift? Yes, it is a gift by grace. But you know, when we say you give your life to Christ, right? That's a cost. That's your life. That you're giving yourself to Jesus. That's the cost that comes with it. And I want to know. I, I want to ask: Have you weighed that cost? Uh, there's a quote by one of my favorite missionaries. His name is Jim Elliot, and it says, "He is no fool that gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose." 
and ask the question, have you really counted the cost? Have you, have you asked that question and found Jesus to be worth everything for you? Because he, he is so far beyond anything we could ever gain in this earth when you really sit down and think about it. And he really is worth everything. So in a moment, we get to a, we get a celebrate and remember that Jesus gave everything for us as we take communion, that he, he gave everything so that we could be redeemed and brought back uh, into a relationship with God. And this is just a remembrance of, of the fact that he considered his life nothing, that he would actually save the world.